to those nurses, to all of you nurses, um, have your voice be loud, have mm-hmm. your voice be heard, have your voice always have in your pocket or in your mind that 30-second uh, elevator speech that you're going to talk about, things that are important you're passionate about. There's no other profession that could lead the changes in healthcare more than nurses could. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. As a 38-year veteran of the U.S. Navy, Retired Rear Admiral Karen Flaherty Oxler is well-versed in the challenges our veterans face when navigating the healthcare system. The first woman CEO of the Corporal Michael J. Cresin VA Medical Center in Philadelphia, Rear Admiral Flaherty Oxler talks with us about seeing challenges as an opportunity for growth, the importance of caring for the healthcare team, and the benefits of bringing joy to work. Thank you so much for coming over to speak with us today. Oh, thank you very much for the inclusion. Yes. Um, if you wouldn't mind giving our audience the honor of an introduction. Sure. Well, thank you very mm-hmm. much, first off, for the mm-hmm. invitation. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Karen Flaherty-Oxler. Mm-hmm. I'm the new director for the Corporal Michael J. Crescent's VA Medical Center here in Philadelphia. Nice. Congratulations on thank that. Thank you. And I thank understand you. you're the first woman to hold that role. I am. That I is am. very exciting. Very exciting. How has that been for you? It's been terrific. Um, I was here as a chief nurse in, from 2001 to 2007. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming back to see some uh, colleagues that I knew and also meeting some new colleagues and coming back in a different role 12 years later. So mm-hmm. lots has changed, but lots is uh, still the work that we need to do and look forward to that. Right. That's fantastic. So how, why don't you tell us, how did you get into nursing? I uh, went to Skidmore College as, for my undergraduate degree, and I mm-hmm. had a, came out with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. I, um, our clinical programs were in New York City for two years. So mm-hmm. We had on campus in Saratoga two years, two years down in New York mm-hmm. City. And I listened to the Navy nurse recruiter for a couple of years and thought, hmm, that sounds kind of interesting. So uh, I knew I wanted to work, of course, after college. So yeah. I joined the Navy for two years as okay. a Navy nurse. Oh, and that two years turned into? 38. <laughs> 38. And it's not that I could not make a decision whether to stay or go. Right. It was really more about the great work that was underway and the uh-huh. opportunities I had from a leadership perspective and then just from a you know, collegial perspective of uh, working with great other people. So that's wonderful. So tell us, where, where did the Navy take you? It was stationed first in, um, we went to Newport, Rhode Island for our officer indoctrination training. Mm-hmm. And then I was stationed with the Marines down in Quantico, Virginia. After that, I came up here to Philadelphia when the Naval Hospital was here in Philadelphia in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And uh, that was post-Vietnam, and we saw certainly a number of wounded warriors there. Yeah. And, uh, and then after that, I did a recruiting tour up in uh, New Jersey and uh, then became tra- was transplanted here to the Philadelphia, New Jersey area. Okay. And you're originally from Connecticut? I'm co- from Connecticut, but I, my husband was a Navy physician, and we met at the Philadelphia Naval Hospital, oh. thus transplanted here, <laughs> which has been a great transplant. That's fantastic. So what did you do? How did you transition from the Navy to civilian 
life? So, so my first, uh, I was spent almost 10 years on active duty and mm-hmm. then made the decision to get off active duty, go into the reserve component. Okay. I happened to come to University of Pennsylvania, the School of Nursing, um, under the GI Bill, Okay. Um, which was fabulous. So I was able to dedicate full-time work to a, a master's in nursing administration mm-hmm. and then a certificate uh, in business from Wharton, which mm-hmm. was a great opportunity. Yeah. And then uh, my first civilian job was at Jefferson here in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. um, they took a... Uh, leap of faith with me, and I took a leap of faith with them, and now uh, it was a 13-year partnership. Oh, that's nice. So what kind of work did you do at Jeff? So I was uh, started out as Associate Director for Surgery, mm-hmm. and uh, then became one of the VPs of Surgery Perioperative Services. Okay. So you've had a really broad experience between the Navy and civilian right. leadership. Right, I have. Um, what do you see as some of the differences? So I think some of the differences certainly are um, who you care for. The, mm-hmm. the, of course, the, the military had both, uh, we had retirees, we had active duty military, and we certainly had the dependents. So from from um, children to um, women, you know, women, veterans, uh, women, um women and male spouses, uh, and then older retirees we took care of. And I think in the private sector, though, it was really more, particularly at Jefferson, it was more, uh, my area was acute care, and it was more surgical focused, so I had more of the adult adult population, mm-hmm. um, and which was, was great. I mean, a nice blend, um, uh, certainly a great opportunities in both locations. So have you seen over time, especially in the military, the changes in terms of caring for women? Because there probably wasn't a whole lot of women in the military. No, no. When I first entered the military, mm-hmm. you know, many, many of the women in the military were in the healthcare community, so mm-hmm. nurses and and some physician providers, um, some others, and then a, f- a few other women. Um, but the number, the fastest growing number of w- uh, people joining the military are women, and right. so we're starting to see many more uh, women, and thus many more women veterans as well. So mm-hmm. when I put my other hat on as as the director of the uh, VA Medical Center here in Philly. Our, our fastest growing population that we serve is women veterans, and right. so um, you have to change your pri- you have to change your focus. You have to change the priorities of care. You have to really create new services of care for the returning veterans. I can imagine that's creating a lot of challenge. So opportunities, I would say. So challenges, yes, but opportunities, because mm-hmm. as we see, you know, women women have served right alongside of men, and the, and the roles at the mil- in the military they've changed dramatically as well. So you see, many women on the battlefield in this wars, the, these wars going on have been mm-hmm. going on for twenty years. Yeah. Um, you think about Desert Storm. You think about. Um, a uh, quick war there, but extension of terrorism throughout that period of time since 1991. Yeah. Um, and many more women have served. So they've been in different types of roles and thus have had some of the co-occurring um, uh, comorbidities like uh, their male counterparts, post-traumatic stress, traumatic mm-hmm. brain injury, amputations, psychological wounds, both men and women are, are you know, we're, we're serving both men and women, certainly in those capacities. Yeah. So has it been a challenge to extend, like, do you have, like, obstetric services at the VA and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff? So when, when we look at our women, our women are all age categories. So it could yeah. be Vietnam veteran-era uh, women. It could be um, Gulf War. It could be, uh, you know, OIF, OEF. Mm-hmm. So obstetrical services, no, but we partner, and our academic partner is Penn, so mm-hmm. we have great partnership here. Um, so, but GYN services, yes. Um, behavioral health services dedicated toward women, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, all really, really embedded in the whole aspect of primary care and whole health. 
So really trying to change the paradigm of care to one of wellness, one of resiliency, one of really taking a look at um, the care needs that women may have as women veterans, but also as caregivers, often in their own families. Right. So have you seen also at all in terms of the behavioral component of the care that you have, Mm -hmm. the different challenges that women in the military have had that have come to light over with Me Too and things like that? Yes. So certainly um, men men and women have both been exposed to Mm -hmm. some pretty horrific aspects of war and what they've seen have created stress, certainly depression, um, coexisting conditions, sometimes of substance abuse or use. Um, as well as, you know, a little bit post-traumatic stress, just depending on service, depending on commitment. But then also with women, you know, there's been a lot about the military sexual trauma that has people have been exposed to and been part of. And um, it's all of our jobs really to say, no, no more. Uh, Let's stop, but let's make sure we treat and and support women wherever they are. So Mm -hmm. um, for for us, from a veteran's perspective, we want to make sure that women are cared for in a safe environment, that when they come into the organization, they're valued. Uh, There's a campaign that's underway right now, which is part of a national initiative about respect, Mm -hmm. and it's the respect of women serve right alongside of men serving. And so how do you as a a team serve each other and care for each other? Right. I think that's a great perspective to put it in a team team component. Um, So what do you think, with all of the experiences that you have, are there formative experiences that you look back on now that you feel have really made an impact on where you are now? So certainly my family, you know, my uh, certainly foundational, my mom and mm-hmm. dad, and my dad was an educator. And so it was important that uh, you learn and you grow and, and at every opportunity of life. Certainly the Navy for me was founda- a foundational piece because I learned a lot about myself. I learned what I could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, leadership was um, given early on when you earned that. So it was being able to learn some of the aspects of being a good leader, being a good listener, being a good uh, team member, mm-hmm. uh, that was important. And th- again, that helps you create uh, some truly uh, strong components for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, my time at Jefferson, my time at Penn here was mm-hmm. great because I was in a small cohort mm-hmm. of nursing uh, leaders and you just you just start exploring things outside of traditional pathways, which has been fabulous. And that's continued for 30 years. Yeah. Um, my time at Jefferson as well, uh, tremendously found, uh, influential in uh, what I could do mm-hmm. and what I could accomplish. I had a great boss, I had great team members, and I learned how to be a good boss, I would say, and mm-hmm. develop that in the Navy, but certainly honed those skills in my private sector roles. And then certainly c- coming back to the VA, um, this is the dream job. This is the best job. Uh, could have retired probably and said, hmm, okay, I'm probably done now. But my chapter wasn't written. Final chapter wasn't written. So go. it was important to mm-hmm. um, come back to a mission that I'm passionate about. I can stand in front of a room of colleagues and as a veteran mm-hmm. in a group of veterans, speak in a different way and, and encouraging in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then truly being the first woman as the director here, for me, it's about opening doors for others and making sure that there's a, a boatload of individuals coming behind me to step mm-hmm. into those leadership roles. That probably wasn't terribly uh, a boatload. Um, <laughs> um, that there is, um, there would be many in line to come come through the doors as well. Yeah. Um, I look at things differently as as a woman, as a nurse, as a clinician, as having both, you know, served in both the military but the private sector as well. Mm-hmm. I come at things from a different perspective. 
which so far in the for, in the five months that I've been there mm-hmm. has resonated with the team members there. They've been excited. We talk about kindness and respect, and we talk about joy. Mm-hmm. We talk about a lot of joy in the workplace and how important that is when yeah. the days are hard and they are, yeah. how to keep joy and keep respect for each other at the forefront. Yeah, that's such an important piece of the whole mm-hmm. thing. Marion and I were actually just having a conversation about that the other day mm-hmm. about the importance of nurses pulling other nurses forward and and bringing everyone into the fold that it's not like I'll get there and then I'll bring you along the way no it's it's pull everyone forward you know we're stronger when we're a group of colleagues and Mm -hmm. teammates where we are much stronger and I think we also have the ability to check in with each other make sure that each of us are well Mm -hmm. Um, when I have a buddy and I have a colleague we used to call that you know shipmates taking care of shipmates, but I knew if you were off today or something mm-hmm. was going on, I'd keep my eyes on you and I'd want to make sure if you've been deployed or you had been at war, I want to mm-hmm. make sure that you're balanced. I want to make sure that you're okay. Yeah. I want to make sure that things are in place. So it's hard to do that in isolation. You need to do that as a group of colleagues and teammates and we're just stronger when we're like that. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about your leadership journey to becoming a rear admiral? Sure. So um, I was blessed with um, uh, great team members. Mm-hmm. I'll start with that. So it's always been the people. I was great, blessed with great opportunities, mm-hmm. and I was always willing to say yes. And so you say yes, and sometimes it was figuring out how to do it um, <laughs> after you said yes, because you're like, oh, my. Okay. Um, but I can learn that. But if you're good and good with people and you create relationships with other people, mm-hmm. they'll help you. And so I found that I was well-supported and well-helped by many. So um, it was, you know, it was a joyful journey. Um, I took some tough assignments. Mm-hmm. Um, I took, I had to commute sometimes to different places. I'd go to Washington on the weekend from New Jersey to make sure I had that right role. But then I'd learn, and, and you'd learn. And so then once you learned, you could teach others. Mm-hmm. And so when you taught others, they remember that. You created new groups of colleagues, and, you know, they, they you, you took care of each other. And you supported each other in your own personal growth. Mm-hmm. So I had great assignments, and then I was willing to, you know, work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, put in the time and the effort and, and again, the relationships. And uh, was fortunate to continue to um, serve and, and be selected for to be a rear admiral, which was, you know, uh, unforeseen, mm-hmm. unknown. Um, started out as the lowest rank in the um, in the Navy, uh, officer rank as an ensign, uh-huh. um, and then became a two-star admiral. And so um, it was with... A lot of gifts of support along the way and and hard work, but also certainly opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, Many opportunities given to us. So for those who don't know, what does it mean to be a rear admiral? So it means that you're a senior leader in in the organization. Mm-hmm. So in Navy, in for me it was Navy medicine, but then mm-hmm. it was Big Navy. We call that Big Navy and Big Navy medicine. I started out as the director of the Navy Nurse Corps, so I was oh, okay. the 22nd director um, of the Navy Nurse Corps. And it meant that there were you know 27, well, I think it was 2,200 nurses that are across the globe, and you had the responsibility and the opportunity and honor to be their leader mm-hmm. and help them when you know many were deployed, many were home, states trying to make sure professional practice was in place research was underway, all the training needs were met, that they were ready and resilient to do what they needed to do. Um, so so it, it was as you got more senior, mm-hmm. your job responsibilities changed. They were broader often. They were often across domains. So it might just be not just in nursing. 
Uh, when I retired, I was the Deputy Surgeon General for the Navy. So my boss was the Surgeon General of the Navy, who was a colorectal surgeon, mm-hmm. um, and I was his deputy. So mm-hmm. I had operational oversight of all of Navy medicine um, across the globe, and it was with great colleagues and teammates that you made sure that we had the right people in the right jobs, doing the right work with, you know, we're Joint Commission accredited like every place else across the world. Wow. And you make sure that there's the quality measure are in place, that your team members are satisfied. Because keep in mind, you know, these are, this is an all-volunteer force in the Navy. Right. So everybody volunteers to join. Right. And so then it's our job, I think, as leaders to work hard to keep them. And like in the, in the private sector, too, you mm-hmm. need to work hard to keep your team members. Um, and so, you, you know, that's, that's a priority. Mm-hmm. So would you recommend nurses consider enlisting in the Navy? So I, so I would absolutely um, you know, suggest that you explore those options, explore mm-hmm. the ideas. If, if you're a nurse already, you would join as an officer, mm-hmm. and you would then take an oath of office. Uh, assignments can be anywhere from two to four years. I know for me, I learned a lot about myself. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about how to care for teams of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a, a dual responsibility, care for the patients and care for my teammates, and care in regards to from a leader's perspective, support to their professional development and growth. Um, and, and I think it really gives you another, an expanded view um, of, of opportunity as a nurse, as a clinician. They sound like some fabulous benefits. They are. They were for me, for yeah. sure. And again, joined two years and stayed 38. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sure was. <laughs> so I can imagine it must have been really challenging if you need to keep up with um, Joint Commission accreditation standards when you're talking about mobile hospitals and deployed forces and things like that. Sure. So how we manage that was our uh, stateside hospitals or our international hospitals, some Mm -hmm. are in Spain, some are in Italy, they were all accredited by the Joint Commission. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we deployed, we would deploy deploy mobile forces Mm -hmm. and we would go to a a location. We we have um, team members in Afghanistan right now. We have team members across the the globe. They would, um, those aren't Joint Commission accredited, but the team members who go there have been in, have trained in organizations that are. Mm -hmm. So all the quality stuff standards, all of the, you know, the the cutting-edge technology. Often when you think about how technology gets into the private sector, it often mm-hmm. is, comes from the military yeah. section, uh, sector or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just some of the sections of work there. Yeah. So we, we, you know, make sure we're accredited, make sure there's, you know, all of the principles of, of good leadership are there, all the principles of technology and technology-driven solutions all exist there in the military. Yeah. Yeah, I I was a trauma nurse and Mm -hmm. then working in the operating room. Mm -hmm. There are so much that we take from military lessons in terms of resuscitation and and trauma treatment for the patients. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. It was some really exciting stuff that we got. And I think continuing because they often, um, you know, it's interesting. Unless you're in a very urban area where Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, um, certainly you see trauma and you see more blunt trauma than you do penetrating trauma. Right. Where you see penetrating trauma often can be on the battlefield. Right. And particularly with these two two particular wars, we've seen more of the, you know, uh, improvised explosive devices and blast injuries and Mm -hmm. co-occurring conditions along with that. And so the teams that have been, the surgical teams that have been there have been exposed to some things that they, they may not see in other locations, right? Good and bad. 
and yeah. everything from that perspective. So we, we keep our eyes closely on the providers as well as the the other veterans who might be casualties, you know, the the been exposed to some of those blasts. We worry about the team members as well. Right. So can you talk about some of the innovations that have come out of the military that we now sure. use? Sure. So air, our air, evacu- mm-hmm. air medical evacuation system came from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. When it was the first time we transported casualties off the battlefield via helicopter to then some location for some um, supportive care. Also, um, critical care transport, uh, air critical care transport mm-hmm. came out of the military and private, our Air Force You know, has critical care units that they fly from the battlefield back to launch tool in Germany. And for this war in particular, they're stabilized and then often within a 24-hour period or less, they are stateside, usually in wow. Washington. They fly into Andrews Air Force Base or they fly directly to Washington up in Bethesda, Bethesda Walter Reed Military Medical Center and for definitive care. So within a 24-hour period of time, they can leave the battlefield and be back stateside, which is just unheard of. Yeah. And then think in terms, too, of um, those who provide care on the battlefield. Those are your Navy corpsmen. Those are your Army medics. Those are your air, airmen. If we know that the statistics were such, and there it's a little bit dated, but I believe still pretty current. If a corpsman or an army medic or an air airman got to that casualty, mm-hmm. there was a ninety-eight percent survival rate. Wow! So they rendered first aid and care, and it's really battle care, and then ninety-eight percent survival rate. Wow! So. That then transitioned to some young men and women coming back with catastrophic injury. Right. And, you know, but to their great credit and to their great stamina and resilience, they put us all to shame as to what they can accomplish and what they're able to do post-injury. Right. So, um, you know, that, I would say, has been another aspect. Some of the, um, you know, blood clotting devices that you see and you use and you take for granted were invented on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Some of the tourniquet use that mm-hmm. uh, has was routine and then was not routine but has become more routine based on the blast injuries. We're seeing um, use of that in the private sector. We learned a lot about traumatic brain injury. We learned about a concussive syndrome. Mm-hmm. And while there's been a lot of um, work and inquiry around some sports, you know, sports-related injuries and CET and conversation around that, some of the blast injuries that we saw and we continue to see, um, we're, we've been studying, we've looked at sensors we were able to put in the helmets. We are able to understand that if we, you know, one or two blasts, the brain usually can uh, is pretty, pretty resilient and that mm-hmm. can um, survive well. If you take, you know, your injured war, injured warrior out of the battlefield and let them rest for a period of time, there seems to be a recovery that exists. But we then learned that, you know, consecutive blasts, it was more about the consecutive blasts that it then caused some of the, the, the trauma and the more the defect that we saw. Right. So we learned those things. Um, we learned there's a whole host of more things. And research continues. Uh, we now have... Um, um, in, from the military, we now have databases of um, individuals who have been injured or been exposed to toxins, exposed to some things that we don't know yet what will happen, right. but we know something may, and we have them now in a database so we can track them, we can follow up, we can have the VA provide extraordinary care to these, you know, these veterans. Yeah. It's an extensive systemic um, 
creation sure, the military sure, has gone on. Sure. Yeah. You know, and I think they they do it with uh, humility. Yeah. Um, there's a, an expectation that well, you know, they're just doing their job and they serve others, and they want to make sure it's better each time for the next group of warriors. God forbid, there's another group of warriors that have to go forward, but that they should go forward in a better way. Yeah. Uh, we learn more about Kevlar. We learn more about you know the vests we needed to wear. Mm-hmm. The explosive injuries were on the ground, and the explosion explosions came up. We were seeing more lower extremity and um, GU injuries as well. Mm-hmm. And so we changed the Kevlar. We had more protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had more protection at the near the um, upper part of the thigh extremity so mm-hmm. we could, you know, try to make sure there was, um, you know, um, a better a better way to, I would say, rebound from a, a exposure to blast. Right. So you talked a little bit a few minutes ago about the resilience mm-hmm. of people coming back from mm-hmm. battle. Do you think their military training prior to going into battle is part of that? So, so yes, I do, but I also I can share with you what we added. Um, mm-hmm. I had the good fortune to be the deputy director for the wounded, ill, and injured directorate at the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, and that was looking at the wounded warriors across the Navy and the Marine Corps mm-hmm. and those who deployed. And a couple things we learned. Uh, our military team members are resilient, and uh, we can we learn by having real time surveillance. So, I had a group of psychologists and psychiatrists that were part of my team. Mm-hmm. They are my, not my team, but our team, and and they deployed with the warriors. And so, mm-hmm. what they could observe was that uh, tour length mattered. So, Army was deploying for twelve months, mm-hmm. Navy was deploying for nine months. Sometimes the Marines would have nine month deployments, six month deployments. What they found, what our team members found, was a, a, and the really good news is they shared the information. Six months is about the time, a sweet spot, where mm-hmm. if someone deploys for six months, you get ready to go, you're there for a few months, you're excited about coming back home, and usually there's a resiliency that exists. So we did a lot more training about what, how we prepare people to, to deploy, what do we need to do, psychological stress, some alternative therapies. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's Tai Chi, sometimes it was yoga, sometimes it was acupuncture, sometimes it was any number of those things along with, you know, organic medicine mm-hmm. that uh, we would help prepare them to, to go to war. And then coming home, um, what we learned was tour length mattered. Mm-hmm. The leaders you go with, you know, historically in the military, you deployed with your unit. So you knew your people, you knew your leader, everybody kind of knew each other. So we knew when you're having a good day, a bad day, that this war was different, and particularly for the Navy. And I was worried most about the Navy and the Marine Corps. The Navy was deploying as individuals. So there was a job specialty that we needed someone to deploy to. We would pluck somebody out of their unit and we would deploy them and they may come in on another unit. They That whole sense of uh, partnership, teamwork, all of that was disrupted. Right. And the leader um, often was just chosen. Maybe that person was next up in the queue to go. Right. Where my team went on site, you know, down, they went to Afghanistan there, uh, and, and they were in Iraq as well. They were looking, they had some some thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. So the really good news is our leaders, our, our, our line leaders, those who were running everything in the Pentagon, listened. Mm-hmm. And they paid attention to this this small medical team of psychologists, nurses, social workers, and psychiatrists. And they understood that the tour length mattered. They understood that they needed to choose the right leader because the leader had to be a servant leader, had to be one that would uh, people could you know, relate well with and be fe- and create the trust with that leader. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't just pluck anybody up if they were just next up. That mattered. Um, how they how they uh, doing work that they knew how to do was mm-hmm. important. So having a Navy corpsman do 
other work like security work wasn't going to work because they weren't trained to do that. And right. it was a little bit of a pickup game. So they listened to that. And then also how they came home, how we brought them home uh, was important because that created that balance and that normalcy. Mm -hmm. So they knew that if you deployed as individuals, you then created bonds with that new team that you were with. But when you came back home, if you were on active duty, you would come back to your unit. Some people had deployed, some people had not deployed, and there was just a misalignment of understanding what the roles were. Mm -hmm. And then if you were a reservist or a guardsman and you came home and you hadn't deployed with your unit, no one really knew what you did, and you there was a bit of isolation that right. existed. So we had we created returning warrior weekends. So mm -hmm. so many weeks after the, the people were back home, our warriors were back home, we brought them all back together, the team that had deployed. So with their family members, usually their spouse um, mm -hmm. or significant other, and had the opportunity to work with teams of psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, just to talk about reentry and reintegration and how that was as much an essential piece as the deployment piece. Because then you be, you're a little bit more balanced. Mm -hmm. um, you're able to focus on what are, what's next, the priorities, mm -hmm. um, and to have some of that healing and restoration that was needed. Mm -hmm. So the really good news is our line leaders listened and they were fabulous about uh, making the changes. That sounds like a really progressive program. You know, I, I, I had the best team in the world. Uh, the best team in the world, and uh, they, I was blessed to be part of that team. And mm -hmm. they thought differently. They looked at things from a very scientific but very um, intuitive perspective as well. They, um, they truly understood the dynamics of groups, the dynamics of individuals and members of the group, and how, you know, in a deployment setting that's different. How do you recreate some of that mm -hmm. uh, feeling of trust and respect and everything when you come home? So, you know... We know it made a difference because we saw some decrease in, in um, um, some of the post-traumatic stress overall. We saw a decrease in depression. Mm -hmm. we, we knew who, who were at higher risk for some of those. Uh, we were able to watch a little bit more closely some of the um, co-occurring conditions post-deployment after their home. Mm -hmm. um, and then making sure there was a warm handoff where there needed to be a warm handoff for additional support. So with your new role here... Mm -hmm. What is it that you're most looking forward to accomplishing? So this this organization, the mm -hmm. Corporal Michael J. Crescens mm -hmm. VA Medical Center here in Philadelphia, is named after a uh, Vietnam veteran uh, from Philadelphia who is the only Vietnam veteran from Philadelphia to win the, to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Oh wow! So that being said, there's a very high bar of what's expected of uh, myself and our team in regards to outcomes and care and, mm -hmm. and relationships and making sure our veterans are supported. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about that every day. We talk about uh, how we're doing really well, but we need to be the best in the country. We have a great academic partner in Penn, mm -hmm. and why, why not? Uh, why, why not us being the best in the country? Right. So we look hard at uh, how we, you know, people need to be enrolled in primary care. We have about 61,000 veterans uh, enrolled in primary care right now. And, and Philadelphia is the fifth largest city, fifth or sixth, however, whoever, mm -hmm. whatever the census may tell us this next cycle. Uh -huh. um, but it's a large area. And our right. veterans are from a very diverse mm -hmm. background. Um, you know, to, to be uh, cared for at the veteran, at the VA hospital, there's different categories of veterans. So we have a number of Vietnam veterans we care for, still some Korean War veterans we care for. Um, 
new veterans, OIF, po OIF, OEF, post 9-11 veterans, and Gulf War veterans, and each has different requirements. Right. So I need the team and desire the team to be supported to be able to understand that and know the story of that veteran because that will help tailor the care. Mm -hmm. It's personalized. It has to be individualized care, and I believe that this organization is just at the B. I mean, they have done great work, mm -hmm. and we have progressed in the star ratings mm -hmm. um, uh, significantly, uh, but we still have more to do. And, and you know, I'm confident I have the right team. My the faculty members, um, uh, the physicians are all Penn faculty members. Mm -hmm. uh, my team members here, the nursing team members, were on the magnet journey for Pathways to Excellence. So there's many, many... A social work, there are social workers, people have tenure there, they understand the veterans. They serve, many have served themselves, many have family members who have served. Mm -hmm. It's hard to meet anyone these days who, who either does not have a family member or know of someone who has. Yeah. And so I think that's an apolitical kind of conversation that we can have about what do we do right and what do we need to do well. Right. So what about nurses who don't work for the VA? How mm -hmm. can we help our Certainly. veterans? So I think... How you can help in the private sector or in your personal life is know who the veterans are mm -hmm. and, and know that a veteran has a story. Mm -hmm. And a veteran usually has had a rank or a uh, been something in a different life. Mm -hmm. Get to know that story because the story will help inform what the care needs are. And then because they may be shy or reticent to share unless you ask specific questions. And if you ask specific, it's often about tell me where you served. Yeah. And when you learn where they served... And if you, you can learn a little bit more about the environment. You can learn a little bit more about um, how long they served, where they were deployed, mm -hmm. um, where they stateside. And, and you can just, the conversation just changes. People are usually okay with telling their story. Some may not. And then, you know, you, know, you just don't ask then. Yeah. You come back again because you ask the next time or the yeah. next time. Um, uh, we, the, the VA has really, and what I you know, really wanted to say as well is it's really about primary care and it's really about making sure um, our veterans age well mm -hmm. and they age well with, with uh, vitality and vigor mm -hmm. and able to do all kinds of extraordinary things that they want to do uh, without some of the you know, impediments that might prevent them from you know, living a whole life and a full life. So I think you can help in that way. I think also it's um, you know, in your communities you can have conversations around, uh, you know, kind of knowing who's where. Mm -hmm. um, if you work in the private sector, often there is many electronic health records. Here at Penn, you have Epic. Yes. Uh, we launched out in Lancaster when I was out there as the chief nurse and uh, uh, president of the hospital there about, you know, adding a question, um, are you a veteran? And if the answer was yes, mm -hmm. then it's the nurse started the conversation around the story. Because that was a full part of the assessment as well. Right. Um, it, it's, the, it's that story. Yeah. It's a, that's another thing that Mary and I were recently talking about is not looking at um, patient-centered care, but human-centered mm -hmm. care. There's great, so much more great. going on with a person. Absolutely. And I think the veterans are a really good example of, of that. You know, if we think of people as patients, we think of them as in a disease state or some as some out of balance state, perhaps. But right. if you look at the human aspect of that, um, there's some something that has occurred that may have, you know, um, caused a little bit of a hiccup. Right. I would suggest, but why not get them back to try to work work hard to get them back to where they could be. Right. So I, I completely agree with you. And I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a life lesson for humanity in all of that, too. There, there is. 
There is a life in my lesson for that. <laughs> I, I would I would concur with your humble opinion. Um, and for nursing too, yes. I feel as though as a profession, um, we tend to look to the needs of everyone else. We don't necessarily look to the needs of uh, nursing as a profession, no, great. and great. Um, and because of that, we've been an untapped resource for a really long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. So so to those nurses, to all of you nurses, um, have your voice be loud. Have mm-hmm. your voice be heard. Have your voice always have in your pocket or in your mind that uh, thirty second elevator speech that you're going to talk about things that are important. You're passionate about. There's no other profession that could lead the changes in healthcare more than nurses could. There is no other profession. Um, You know, quite honestly, we shouldn't be waiting for others to ask. We should be leaning in. And I know the team members here at Penn do, and Mm -hmm. I know across the nation they they do and they will. But be that voice. Um, I I do not take lightly that I'm the first woman here in this role in the VA Mm -hmm. and the first nurse here in Philadelphia. I'm not the first nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other nurses across the country. However, I believe that that um, creates a little bit of a different dynamic and, and conversation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, lead the way. Lead the way. And if people are in the way, politely pass them yep. and just go by. Keep moving. Do not wait for the light to change. Move. Yeah. Proceed. Exactly. <laughs> Over, under, around, or through. Absolutely. But proceed. Yeah. Have that destination in mind because then, then once you get there, create the next destination. Yeah. Because um, it's about the generations coming behind us, too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much oh for coming to speak fun. with us today. This is fun. Yeah. I should have said that, but yeah. it's a lot of fun. It thank is you. fun. Thank you. It is fun. Thank you. Hello, Marion. Hey, Angela. How's it going? Great. So we had the opportunity to speak with retired Rear Admiral Karen Flaherty-Oxler, who is the CEO of the VA here in Philadelphia. Yes, it was a great conversation. You can really see her commitment to not only the veterans that she serves, but also the team that she works with over at the VA hospital. Yes. So they're making really big strides over at the VA these days. And I was really impressed with her focus on bringing joy to the workplace and looking out for other members of the team. There's so much focus all the time on the patient experience and patient care experience. And we completely ignore the fact that our um, nurses and other colleagues are working 12 and 16 hour days and they're working on their days off and they're here over weekends and overnight. And, you know, it it's really easy to feel like nobody really cares about how you are in this whole uh, continuum. But she really puts a big focus on looking out for the people that you're working with and making sure that they are at their best. Yeah, I really loved that about what she was saying and bringing joy to the workplace. We really do need more of that in healthcare. We're doing so much and dealing with so many complex problems and life and death and illness all the time. And so to be able to have somebody at her level who really appreciates and considers that is a really great model for leadership over at the VA yeah, and in nursing in general. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, she's a fantastic example of, of what should really be happening. Yeah. And the first woman in this position, and she's a nurse. I mean, she really is such a trailblazer. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary. 
and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through.